Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Uh, hey, welcome this morning. Uh, if you are new to Missio Day, my name is Jimmy. I am one of the pastors here, and I am so pumped that you're here. Um, quick update. I know a lot of people have asked. I'll just start out there. I was, like, embarrassed about my back last week, and then I talked to Melissa Pillman, who's our lead pastor at Missio Day Rigliville, and she's like, Jimmy, you talked about it like it is an embodied experience, right, being, being a believer and just being real with where you're at weakness-wise. So I'm a little better, but not there, but we're getting there. So you guys, some of you guys saw me in my hospital gown on Facebook, and I think I looked pretty, but um, anyways, let me go ahead and pray this morning, and then we'll continue our service uh, and by jumping into Psalm 103. Lord, we thank you for the space. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you, to praise you. Lord, I pray that my soul praises you this morning. I pray that our church praises you uh, this morning. Lord, let us command our souls to recognize your presence with us this morning. Uh, as we get to just dwell on your character, we get to hear about who you are, and we have seen who you are uh, through your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that not my words, but yours are remembered. I pray that it's your glory, not mine. Help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, we still have a little bit of a summer crowd, so I need you guys to be a little louder. Uh, laugh a little harder at the jokes, right? Um, hey, yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're off to a good start. Um, hey, if you haven't been here for a minute or if you are new this week, we are in a series on the Summer of Psalms. Uh, and this series will be wrapped up by Tiana next week, which is exciting, and then we'll go into something else. But I have just, this series has been such a balm to my soul. I hope it's been true for you, um, but, if it, but if it hasn't, at least I've gotten good experience right now. <laughs> um, it has allowed me to dive into the language of yearning, the language of lament, the language of worship and praise, and the language of people who honestly grapple with the reality of a broken world and a perfect God, right? Now, three weeks ago, I preached on Psalm 115. I'm sure you all remember it very well, but I'll give you a reminder in case you don't. Um, we talked about idolatry, right? Idolatry is when we worship the created rather than the creator, when we make good things ultimate, when we put something in place of God that cannot bear the weight of his position in our hearts, right? And through Psalm 115, we looked at the outcome of idolatry. What was that outcome? I have the verse up here. Those who make them, them being idols, will be like them, and so will all who trust them, right? And what is being like those idols? Like, so the idea is like if we worship idols, we become like them, right? And the outcome of that is death, right? It's being dead. Why do, why do I bring this up this week? Because this week, through the lens of Psalm 103, I want to continue to talk about idolatry, but in a more particular uh, way that, be patient with me here, because what I'm going to say is that we can make God an idol. I said yes, that we can make God an idol. And before you get mad, Jen, um, let me explain, okay, with some charts. So I have some charts this morning. Now, this first chart, uh, is, are, the, are our slides working? There, okay. This first chart doesn't necessarily go 
directly to where I, uh, what I mean, but, but let me explain, okay? In 2023, uh, surveyors, researchers asked a cross-section of America some questions. For their project, they asked, first off, in 2020, if the person voted for Biden or Trump, okay? And then, from there, they asked them what they thought of popular figures and where they thought they might end up uh, ideologically in the political realm, right? This first chart here, you guys, some of you guys are masters at uh, interpreting charts. Um, this first chart here we have is for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., right? Now, despite his approval rating in the 60s, we don't need to get in that conversation, and despite some foolish people in our current day and age, right, I would say a majority of Americans would say that MLK is a popular, he's a po they think of him positively, right, even as a hero. Well, with that, look at this graph. See, 76% of people who voted for Trump in the 2020 election, 76% say that MLK is somewhere between moderate and extremely right-wing, okay? 75% of people who voted for Biden in the 2020 election say that MLK is somewhere between moderate and extreme left-wing, okay? Makes, you guys following me? So if you are on the right, you thought the MLK, 75% of people think that MLK was on the right. That's my left, but you're right, okay? If you were on the left, 75% um, of people who are on the left think that MLK was on the left. Now, MLK fits somewhere on this chart, right? And granted, politics in America have changed since then, but that's not the point here. The point is that research shows that you align your heroes with your own political identity, right? You are more likely to think someone you look up to is on your team, in your tribe, even when it's absurd to think so, right? And vice versa is true. I'm going to show you another chart here. The same survey asked people what they thought Hitler was, politically speaking. This one is way more extreme, right? 75% of Trump voters said that Hitler was left-wing, with 50% of them thinking he was extremely left-wing. Meanwhile, 65% of Biden voters said that Hitler was extremely right-wing. Or sorry, yeah, right-wing, right? Now, I don't want you to hear me like both siding this morning, I don't do that. I'm not one to be like both sides have issues. And in this case, Hitler was extremely right-wing, right? But this conversation is not the point. The point is that in our tribal thinking, we tend to align our heroes to ourselves and the historic villains with our enemies, even when the truth is the opposite, right? How does this relate to idolatry in Psalm 103? probably guess where I'm going, but I've got one more chart, and you can probably guess who the subject is, right? This chart shows where people think Jesus is aligned politically, right? Even though it's a little bit absurd to impute some of those political ideologies to this century, they still do it, right? My guess is that this is, no one's surpri this is not surprising to anyone, but the more liberal you are, the more liberal Jesus is. The more conservative you are, the more conservative Jesus is, right? And the more moderate you are, the holier, holier you think the middle ground is. Because guess what? Jesus is moderate, right? You guys see what's happening? What am I suggesting with this data? I'm suggesting that instead of realizing that we are made in the image of God, we try to make God in our image, right? Studies suggest that we form group identity first in America, and often that group identity is related to politics, and then the way we think about Jesus comes after, right? Identity, political identity, then theology. 
We have made God an idol by making God in our own image, right? Because when God looks a lot like us, it is no longer God, right? We use his name, but we are worshiping some other God that reflects ourselves, right? That reflects who we are. A.W. Tozer was a pastor on the south side of Chicago in the early 1900s, and he saw this problem as well. Uh, In one of my favorite books, The Knowledge of the Holy, it's a book that explores the character of God, right? He opens with this line in chapter 1. Bless you, Jen. What comes into our minds, here, let me restart this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, right? Let me read a little bit of what he said on this topic in this book. He says, The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do. That's not what's most important. But what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend, this, this part's really good, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Sounds a lot like Psalm 115 to me, right? That our idea of God corresponds as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. Compared with our actual thoughts about him, our creedal statements are of little consequence. Our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are, are we likely to discover, to discover what we actually believe about God, right? So that end quote. In other words, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing to us, and we have to do a little work to figure that out, right? So for the rest of my time this morning, I want to show the impact of thinking rightly about God in our lives and how we do that. And to do so, let's go ahead and get back to the text after water. Now, this is a really long psalm, right? Psalm 103. It is densely packed with a ridiculous amount of uh, ideology and and words to describe who God is, right? So all I'm going to do this morning is I want to list everything the text says about God and then what the text says about us, about people in general, right? Let's go. What does Psalm 103 say of God? He forgives sins. He heals disease. He redeems life from the pit. He crowns us with love and compassion. He satisfies desires with good things. He renews youth. We're not done. He works justice and righteousness for the oppressed. He makes his ways known. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He does not harbor his anger. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, nor does he treat us as our iniquities deserve, right? He once again is abounding in love. He removes transgressions from us. He knows all, and he rules all, right? I mean, what an amazing picture of God this is, right? If you internalized all of this, and we're able to name the way that each of these things plays out in your life, how high high of, uh, of God would you see 
That did not make sense. How high would your view of God be? That's what I'm trying to say, right? It would be absurdly high, wouldn't it? This is what means. It means that God is holy, that all of his characteristics show him to be so supreme that he is set apart from anything else, right? And so I've started a little chart here. We have God at the top, right? With this in mind, let's read what is true of us. What does Psalm 103 say about us in reverse? It says that we are sinful. We are full of iniquity. We are transgressors. We are formed from dust. We are like grass, meaning we are not eternal and we are not strong, right? And we are not remembered. It's kind of a grim picture, right? And these are the, just the things that the text outright names. You, tar- you start to extrapolate a bit and you conclude that we have no power to save ourselves from these things and that we are wholly dependent on God, along with a boatload of other things, right? So then what kind of picture does this paint for us? That we are very different from God. That the gap between us and God is so vast, it begins to make sense why we have no, make, or no power to make up the gap ourselves, right? Now, there's an interesting trend in the Bible that sort of follows the way that Psalm 103 does this as well. Uh, it doesn't happen every time, but oftentimes when we, in, when we see encounters of God and his character and who he is, we have people respond with a picture of themselves. They realize some things about themselves, right? They'll realize that as God is holy, as God is perfect, they, get, they see their fallenness, their brokenness, right? Which makes sense to me. The more we encounter God, the more we realize how not God we are, Right? You see someone really good at basketball, you realize you're probably not that good at basketball, right? I, short story, I didn't ha- have it here, but I'm just going to tell you guys anyways. Uh, sorry, it is a sports thing. So, But 7th and 8th grade, um, I got to play in the Colts Stadium right before, I think I told Steve this last night, right before uh, they played a game on Sundays. And so we're in the Colts Stadium, my 7th grade year, they're playing the Raiders, and the Raiders had just signed Warren Sapp. Now Warren Sapp, for those of you who don't know, which I would assume most of you, um, he was a 350-pound, five defensive lineman, and he's a Hall of Famer. So he is just a massive man. I'm in seventh grade. I've not hit my, uh, my growth spurt yet. I'm about 104 pounds soaking wet, right? 5'1"-ish. And of course, I'm our middle linebacker, tiny. So I'm like, I want to go stand next to him. I go up, and I stand next to Warren Sapp, and I just kind of look at him, you know, in my set. It's probably like this. I'm like, what's up? And, just kind of, and he starts, he goes, what's up? <laughs> and just an enormous man. Do you know what I realized in that moment? I wanted to be an NFL player. I was not going to be an NFL player, right? <laughs> like, I had zero chance. I went back to school, and we did this project the next year, and they were like, all right, we're going to tell, everyone's going to say what they want to be when they grow up. And all my friends were like, NBA player, NFL player. And I'm like, NFL coach, right? I knew that was my only chance. I'm getting there. Hey, it's still a goal. Uh, So you guys get the point, right? When we're compared to something that's great, we have a realization of what's true of us. Let's look at Isaiah 6. This is a great picture of this. Now, we're not going to dive super deep into this, so I encourage you to do it on your own. But Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, we get a picture of Isaiah encountering God in a really beautiful way through a vision in his throne room. Let's look at that vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high, this is really small, sorry, high and lifted up, seated on a throne. 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, which are just like angels, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voice, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So we get this beautiful picture of Isaiah in God's throne room, and what does he see? He sees these majestic angel-type things. I don't really know, but they're huge, right? They're so huge that the place shakes when they speak, and yet they are worshiping God, right? I mean, what does that say about God, right? So let's look at what Isaiah's response is to this picture. Verse 5, woe to me, Isaiah cries, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. See, when our reference point of perfection is each other and not God, it's really easy to manufacture righteousness, right? At least I'm better than so-and-so. And you know what? There's always a so-and-so, isn't there? Yet the more time we spend with God, the more we become aware of his holiness, the more obvious it becomes that we are broken, sinful, far less perfect than he is, right? I have a little chart here for us to show this progression uh, in Christian life. It's the like, yeah, there we go. So as we, yeah, Zoe has seen this a lot. Sorry, Zoe. As we uh, grow in our awareness of God's holiness, we become aware of our fallenness, right? And it's almost like the more you recognize God's holiness, the more you recognize your lack of holiness, right? Does this make sense, this chart? It's all we've talked about, right? Now, the obvious question with this chart is why the heck would I want that? Right? What's the point of spending time with God if all I'm going to become aware of is how broken and sinful I am? Right? I have a, uh, what? Well, no, sorry. Why, this next question, why in Psalm 103, as the psalmist reflects on God's perfection and our finiteness, why does that lead him to end with verses 20 to 22? I'll read, I'll read them for you again, just so you know. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all the heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Right? He just got finished with saying, God is holy, we are broken, therefore, praise God. How can he do that when he is so aware of his fallenness? The answer is because God's goodness, God's holiness, is not just for God to enjoy. Right? Because God is a Trinitarian God, he is Father, he is Son, he is Holy Spirit. His goodness is one that overflows to us naturally, just as it is overflown in relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And what does that overflowing lead to? Back to Psalm 103, verses 10 to 12. He does not treat us as our iniquities deserve, or as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so is his great love for those who fear him. Right? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. In other words, God knows the gap existed. Right? He knows it far better than we do. And yet, he does not treat us as if that gap exists. Right? 
What does Ephesians say? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were separated from him, made us alive with Christ. By grace we have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, right? The motivation to continue to pursue understanding God's holiness at a deeper and deeper level is because then we get to experience how big the gospel is, right? That's the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This is Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 when he says this, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp, this is the good part, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Are you guys with me? Like, we can experience God's holiness, we can experience God's brokenness, because God, through Jesus, has made us holy, right? He has seated us with him in the, reven- in the heavenly realms, Right? We are safe to explore God's character and the results of knowing our fallenness only because the safety the gospel provides. That in light of our shortcomings, God has revealed his love for us through Jesus' work before, during, and after the cross. Because this love exists, because our righteousness is found, not in ourselves, but in Jesus' perfection, we can be real about where we are, right? while not having to experience that reality with shame, rejection, and defensiveness added on like Geraldine shared this morning, right? Because as far as the east is from the west, so have our transgressions been removed from us. You guys are quiet for something. That's pretty nice. So with this in mind, I want to circle back to the original idea, right? That we can make God an idol by making him in our image, right? Now, going back, I want to go back to the gospel grid, the, this with the crosses, right? So we get a picture now of what is true as a result of Jesus, right? Why is it important that we recognize when we have made God to be unlike himself in our minds? Why is it important when we make God look like us? See, the idea, that, again, that God is, not, is a lot like us, he's no longer God, right? This, this can work for a while, this idea of, like, making God in our image, because it makes us feel kind of good, right? You can function for a long time with God in your image. But what happens when the real power of God is required in a situation? Your God is weak, right, if he's in your image, and he'll never be able to show up. What happens if, in this situation, you're given grace to realize some of your brokenness? Well, guess what? If God is a lot like you, Is God good? That's the question that arises, right? Also, in making God, I've said this, but in making God to be more like ourselves, we shrink the gap between us and God. And what that does is render Jesus' work on the cross at best minuscule, right? And at worst, meaningless, right? When we worship a God made in our image, righteousness is going to look a lot like what we're already doing, right? What makes God good in this scenario is what we believe to be good. And isn't that probably reflected even a little bit in our own lives? But low view of God destroys the gospel for all who hold them, right? 
I can keep going, but I think we understand. The implications of a God made in our image are far worse than we can even begin to imagine, right? Now, I do want to provide a few caveats for this because you might hear some wrong things from me. I'm not saying that knowledge of the true God leads to, leads to salvation, right? That's called Gnosticism. I'm also not saying that you have to have perfect theology and whole theology uh, in order to avoid this, right? That's actually impossible. The whole Christian experience of sanctification is growing in our awareness of God, right? I'm convinced that even in eternity, we will continue to discover more and more about God's goodness. God is too big for us to fully understand, right? So that's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is when we attribute to God what is not true of him because it helps us feel more righteous, right? Or when we lessen some of his qualities and overemphasize other things. Now, I don't have a long period to uh, get into this, but I did want to provide an example. Some of you who are on social media, it is not, or not on social media, it's not worth it, but I'm still there. There's a whole subsect of people on social media that have begun to claim that empathy is a sin. Right? Think about that for a moment. If God is not empathetic, and therefore being empathetic is a sin, I can attack people online, Right? I can have a lack of care for the oppressed and the marginalized. My righteousness would not be affected by my lack of empathy and compassion, right? This is what we have to consider for ourselves. Does your view of God, not just what you say about him, not just the creedal responses, but does your real view of God, your real functioning view, align with the God of scriptures? And if not, why, right? Is it because that you have to have a God that looks like you so you can feel righteous because we don't understand the gospel? And then how are we going to rectify that considering the ways in which it plays out in our lives, right? So this is what I want to do to wrap up my sermon this morning. I want to provide a few pretty straightforward action steps in order to, to begin to consider how we can realign our view of God with the true God, right? The first step is we have to be rooted in Scripture, right? We have to open our, our Bibles more, right? Explore the pages. Ask of each page you read, what does this say about God? What does this say about me, right? Try to occasionally bring no prior ideas to the Scripture and see what happens. Let the Word of God shape you, refine you, influence you, as opposed to you reading your own views into it, right? Now, the Bible is a big book with a lot of verses that are easy to take out of context and easy to apply in the wrong way, right? If we are not reading and testing our ideas about Scripture in community, we may fall victim to continuing to, to create our own God, right? Which leads to my second application, which is community, refinement, and discipleship, right? Being able to process our ideas of God safely in community with gentle correction when we've made God to be small is vital for a healthy relationship with God, right? While I think individual time in the Word is a really, really good thing, I'm, not, I'm concerned that the American church's uh, practices are backwards from where they should be, right? Because I think even, you take some of the best Christians uh, in your head, you're like, oh, that person's a really good Christian. I think when we identify someone as having a really lavish relationship with God, they'll spend about an hour or more in Scripture each day by themselves, right? And then about an hour in Scripture a week with their community in their, in their small group or things like that. 
And I understand introvertedness. You know, I understand, well, I don't, but I've heard of it. Um, I understand, inter- I don't understand internal processing, but again, I've heard of it, right? But I do wonder if some of this should be reversed or at least evened out a little bit, right? If all of our time in the Word is by ourselves and then just a little bit is in community, I think that that has to be rebalanced in some ways, right? Now, I'm not going to get super deep into this part because, spoiler alert, like I said, Tiana's going to be finishing up Psalms next week, and then we're going to do three-week short series on discipleship. Um, And we're going to talk about what discipleship could look like for us because we're actually going to be launching uh, something new, some, a little bit of a new path in our church called discipleship groups. Um, and I'm going to be describing them all throughout August, and then we're going to launch them in September, and you can sign up for them. But what they're going to be is groups of two to four uh, in which you just self-govern, sort of meet up weekly or whatever works for you, uh, and explore each other's lives, explore scripture, explore God together, right? We want to be a church that is making disciples, Right? And so we have to be in discipleship with each other if we're also going to make disciples. So we'll, we'll talk about that more later. You don't have to worry about that for now. But just throw that uh, in the back of your mind if that's something that's of interest to you. And then the, our final action step for this morning, it's another obvious one. It's prayer, right? Prayer that God reveals more of himself to us, yes. Like prayer to be like, I want my uh, picture of God to be aligned with God. That makes sense. But even more than that, just honestly praying in general. I think prayer is a crazy, crazy thing, right? Because often we enter into prayer with petitions and asks, requests of God. And what happens is that prayer becomes, what it, what it is, what prayer is, is become increasingly aware of God's presence in our lives already, right? It's stepping into the throne room where, with God and just having a conversation, right? I think sometimes, again, Petitions are fine. Like, if, you, if that's how you do prayer, that's a good thing. But recognize what you're actually doing is placing your heart in the presence of the Lord who's already in our, in our midst, right? And when you do that, you align yourself with him more, right? I think sometimes we go into petitions where, like, God, I need you to align to my life more. Like, give me this, give me that, give me that. And what, what the result is, is actually the opposite, that we align ourselves with God. So prayer is of vital importance, With that, this is how I'd like to end uh, my sermon this morning. I'm going to pray through Psalm 103. In doing so, as you are seated, ask God to reveal more of these characteristics to you. Reveal the ways in which these attributes play out in your life. Reveal what it means for your relationship with him, and reveal the ways that you have made him in your image, right? Because what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important things about us, right? With that, let me pray through this. God, pray, I, I pray that my soul praises you. All of our innermost being praise you, God. My soul praise you. I pray that we do not forget all of your benefits. We do not forget that you uh, forgive all sins. You heal all disease. You redeem our life from the pit. You crown us with love and compassion. You satisfy our desires with good things. Our youth is renewed like eagles. Lord, you work righteousness and justice for the oppressed. You have made your ways known to us through Moses. You've made your deeds known to the people of Israel. God, you are compassionate and gracious. You are slow to anger. 
You are bounding in love. You will not always accuse, nor will you harbor your anger for an- uh, forever. You do not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your love for those who fear you. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so have you had compassion on us. You know we were formed. You remember that we are dust. Our life is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field, and then the wind blows over, and it is gone, and its place is no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, your love, God. From everlasting to everlasting, your love. Right? Your love is with those who fear, us, fear you, your righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep your covenant and remember to obey your precepts. The Lord has established, you have established your throne in heaven, and your kingdom is over all. So church, I pray, praise the Lord, you his angels, you his mighty ones who do his bidding, you who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all the heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, this is us, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Thank you for listening to the Missio Dei Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.